I was put on the air to fight. This is a Getting Back Up podcast. The city fights back. And I think you just inherit that as you grow up here. Never given up until you achieve the thing you want most in the world. What he gave me is an unbelievable engine and an unbelievable amount of belief in myself. Yeah. I'm as much black as I am white, so how do I define one or the other? That does mean me. It's a mixed race. I'm as proud of being black as I am as being white. The first time grief hits us, I remember just sobbing, sobbing for days. That's why people, I think, care about you so much. And they, they got invested on the journey because you are that normal dude. Hey everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Getting Back Up with me, Anthony Agogo. The Getting Back Up podcast is a podcast where I talk to amazing people with inspiring stories, people that have achieved great things in both their lives and careers, but only after suffering massive setback and adversity. For those that don't know, I'm a former boxer. My boxing career peaked at the London 2012 Olympic Games when I won a bronze medal for myself and Team GB. I then turned pro and I was this close, a whisker away from achieving all my dreams and becoming a world champion. And in just one punch, my whole life changed. My eye soccer is fractured. I went on to have nine surgeries on my eye in the next three years that I tried desperately to keep my boxing career alive. It's no avail. I was forced to retire and I'm now 78% blind in my left eye. Losing boxing, losing everything I had, I sunk to a deep, dark depression. I went through my own really, really dark times. And then this time I looked for inspiration everywhere. After years of, of trials and tribulations, I was able to brick by brick rebuild myself to doing what I do now. I'm now a professional wrestler for AEW in the US. I'm very much living a second childhood dream, and it's amazing. But that's why I wanted to create the Getting Back Up podcast, to give everybody out there who's struggling some inspiration to realize that they can rebuild, they can come back, they can get back up and live the life they want to live. Our first guest on the Getting Back Up podcast doesn't get much bigger. We've got a British boxing legend, Tony the Bomber Bellew. Now, he did everything in the world of boxing. A three-time ABA champion, British, Commonwealth, European and WBC cruiserweight champion of the world. We talked to Bellew about all the big nights, the world title win, and all the tough times, the setbacks, the knockout losses. We talk to the man behind the boxer. We talk to Anthony Bayou. He goes into detail about growing up in Liverpool in the 80s as a mixed race kid. Bayou talks openly about his dad being in prison. He talks about loss, suffering and setback. We cover all those dark times and of course the big explosive knockout wins. Tony is such an inspirational man and I'm sure you can agree he drops so many nuggets of inspiration so listen up learn from this great man let's get stuck in Tony good to see you mate you too mate great to catch up and see that it's been a while I'm proud to call you a friend thank you you too 
Thank Goals you. Goes both ways. Thank you. But I'm proud of the way your career blossomed and like you winning the world title at the end and and making your like your family financially secure. Mate, it's been it's an honour to have you as a mate and an honour to have you today on the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, I wish I could look at myself the way you've just described me. I don't ever look at myself like that. I just look at myself as a normal lad who is willing to go through anything to get what he wanted to get uh, and pushed it to the very, very limit. And, and that's the only reason why I achieved what I achieved. But thanks very much, mate. You was around when we was just young lads travelling the world, going around boxing for England, being in some of the worst places in the world, some of the worst digs in the world, and getting punched by some of the best fighters in the world, mate, to, to, to heap the more trouble and more pain on it. So thanks very much. Very welcome, mate. Um, but I think that like, that everyday bloke that you see yourself as, that's where like, the humility comes from. That's why people, I think, care about you so much. And they, they got invested on the journey because you are that normal dude. You're yeah. Bloke. I don't ever profess to be anything. I mean, just because I don't look at myself as being because of what I've done or because of what I've achieved as being any different than anyone else. I'm I'm no different. Me, what I've do, what I've done doesn't define who I am. What I've got doesn't doesn't shape who I am. Uh, I'm just an, a normal lad, mate, and who's, who's basically lived out his lifelong dream of that one night at Goodison Park. And when I think about boxing, <clears throat> I think about that now. So. Yeah, I look back with fond memories, but at the same time, I don't believe I'm anything special. What I achieved and what you've been through and what you've achieved, anyone can do it. It's just how much do you want it? How much are you willing to persevere through pain and dark times and hard times? Because we've all got them. We've all had them. It's just how much do you want to get out of them? It's what you do when you're literally like us, but metaphorically, like most people, when you're lying flat out on your back, looking up at the lights, it's what you do in that moment mm. that dictates what kind of life you'll live and if you achieve your dreams or not, mm. right? So, so listen, I, I mean, I hurt my eye in 2016 and when I had to retire from boxing, the one thing I truly loved, I couldn't bury my head in the sand far enough, right? So, okay. so I didn't watch much boxing at all when I, from 2016 onwards, and there's a couple of guys I kind of kept an eye out for, you being one of them. Mm. Um, and... I remember when you retired, vaguely, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you vaguely said something like, um, like Tony, Bo Tony Bellew, the boxer, well, that persona is done now. It's dead. And now you're going back to Anthony Bellew, no. the man. And I love that. I love that. And today, listen, I, I want to talk to Tony Bellew today, the boxer. Okay. I want to talk about the, the wins of a knockout Echo Arena, 02, Goodison Park, the knockout wins, knockout losses. But I also want to talk to Anthony Bellew today. Okay. Because, no, the man behind the myth, behind the legend, the brother, the son, the the, the father, the, the brother-in-law, because to me, that man is every bit as inspiring as the man that we all cheered for in the ring on fight night. Okay. I don't think people have delved too much into him. No one knows him because no one gives shit about it, to be totally honest. But listen, the thing is, but I don't, I think, I think that's what you think. People do. I do. Yeah. And this pod, this isn't a boxing podcast or even a sporting podcast. This is a, a getting back up podcast. This, like you said earlier, this is a never given up until you achieve the thing you want most in the world. And that's what this is all about. And you've got an unbelievable story. And because your story is so unbelievable, I want to kind of give each chapter of it the respect it deserves to so where I'd like to go with this podcast. And obviously, like I like to talk, you like to talk. We might go with a massive tangent. <laughs> so, 15 years old. Yeah. 
A little chubby kid, in your own words. Yeah, definitely, um, mate. A fat kid. I, I was a chubby came after the year. I, I lost a bit of fat. Uh-huh. I loved football so much. I was a mad Everton fan. I dreamed of being a footballer uh, at 12 years old, but I just wanted to be any Everton player. I just wanted to be like Peter Bates, who was brilliant. Uh, there was just loads of players playing for us who, who I idolised and looked up to. And I just thought, I want to be a footballer. But in hindsight, in reality, it's, you know, you're just not good enough. I was too fat and not good enough. <laughs> Top and bottom all in me. But if you, let's say you had been good enough, or yeah. if, like, you have got a violent streak in you, right? Yeah. An angry streak in you, just as myself. And football, football, as I said earlier, I thought football, like, cut the mustard for me, but it didn't. Like, wasn't until I started boxing and I could channel this anger. Because I had, I had a difficult upbringing and I was an angry kid. And all of a sudden, normally at school when I was fighting, I got in trouble. I got red carded, I got sent home from school, I got expelled. And now, all of a sudden, I'm punching people and getting commended. Yeah. And well done. And now it's like, well, is this legal? Fuck you. <laughs> and I don't know, listen, like, tell me if I'm wrong, but football, like, you were born to be a boxer, surely. That violent streak. I think I was put on the air to fight. I definitely think that much. Uh, did. At first, when I was just chasing wanting to be a footballer and living the dream, no. But then I get to a stage in my life where I'm expelled from school and, and that's the path that I take. So I understood and I knew I was good at it. I just knew. I watched it from a young age. I always studied it from the outside. So I was like, I loved Mike Tyson. I loved Nigel. But what age is this? When you uh, started boxing? When I, when I, so, you know, I, I, kicked, I started kickboxing first. So I was playing football, uh, enjoying doing that. Wanted to just be a footballer. And then at some stage, I think it must have been about 12, 13, my dad takes me on pads. And I used to see my dad shadow box and he'd go and he'd jog and he'd go, he takes to Sefton Park. When he'd get back, he'd finish off with like 10 minutes of shadow boxing. And I'd be like, what are you doing that for? Did he do a bit? You're dead. He boxed, he had two amateur fights. Uh, first one he won. Second one, a uh, fellow was jabbing his face off. This is the, from the stories that I'm told. Jabbed his face off at the end of the first round. He goes back to his corner, picks up the stool, and attacks the guy with the stool. So that explains everything. <laughs> that was the end of my dad's uh, boxing career. So yeah, it was it was difficult for him. Uh, my dad's someone who he can fight. My dad can have a fight. My dad ran Liverpool's nightlife in in the city centre for the best part of ten years. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Ogogo Fitness. Ogogo Fitness is my brand new fitness app I'll be launching really, really soon. I've created this app so I truly want to help people. I believe everybody should have the right to exercise and be fit and be healthy. I've brought this to the world to promote physical health and mental health. I've designed 60 preset seven minute workouts ranging in difficulty from round one which is pretty easy to round 12, which is really, really challenging. As well as that, I've got my personal workout builder. I've created 50 different exercises and you have the choice to create your own playlist from the 50 different workouts, which gives you an option of over 80 million combinations of workouts, 80 million. So from your GoGo Fitness app, you can literally choose for millions and millions and millions of workouts personalized for you and what you're training for. So head over to agogofitness.com, register your interest, and be the first to know when Agogo Fitness is launching. So when you started at 15, did you love the sport immediately? 
Uh, I had my first fight at 15, uh, which is quite late. You know, yeah, really? Those would have been earlier, but yeah, 15, I had my first bout. From the first bout, yes, I loved it, but yeah. there was a build-up before then. So before I had my first bout, I went to a gym. I went into Kirkdale ABC, done one session. Perkin, Perkin. Chair gym, yeah. Uh, Joey Ainsgo was there. Yeah. Went into this gym. It was at the time, I think it was on... It's a community fireplace now that where it used to, what it is now, but it used to be just like, you go up the stairs and on the second floor there's a boxing gym and a boxing ring and everyone would be running around sweating as you do, that smell was there. I went there, done one session, I didn't like it. I just thought, no, don't like it. What about it did you not like? That's what I love that when that smell. I, 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 I didn't mind the environment, I just didn't like, I don't want to say the people because that sounds wrong because I didn't know them. I just didn't. There's something about it I didn't like. It didn't. It didn't sit with me right. So I left there. Uh, I said to me, my dad said, do you want to go back to another boxing gym, try somewhere else? And I said, oh, I'm not sure. So I left it for a few weeks. A few weeks went by. I went into this town. I went into Rotunda ABC. Walked into Rotunda ABC. Now, I've been doing boxing sessions at the 051 gym. I've been doing boxing sessions with me dad in the garden, in the yard. I wish we had a fucking garden. In the yard, uh, at this stage, my dad had left home, so I was seeing my dad like every few days, and, and when I'd see him, we'd do stuff and we'd play, and, and we had nice times. But I was just doing things to make up the time, and when he says to me, do you want to go to this boxing gym? I thought, I tried one, do one, try another. Went to the under ABC, I come across a guy called Jimmy Albertina, mm-hmm. and I walked in and I thought, well, if I want to go to a boxing gym, I just want to fight. I don't really want to go to all this training stuff and the running and all that. I didn't like it. So, goes in the gym, and uh, Jimmy puts me on a bag. He says, just hit that bag, let me have a look. Bang, 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 I'm in the bag, double left hooks. I, I, I threw up. And you're a big kid if you're yeah, right? I'm a lump. You start, yeah, you I'm, amazed I'm a lump. I'm yeah. a proper lump. I had a big ass on me, <laughs> but I could really fight. Uh, and he just went, right, who did you box for? And I said, I haven't boxed for no one. He said, don't lie to me. He said, there's no point in lying to me. I'll find out. He said, who have you boxed for? I said, I've never had a bout in my life. He said, no one hits a bag like that after without having a bout. And I said, well, my dad showed me how to punch a bag and this and that. And he went, no, you've had a bout. I said, I haven't. I said, I'll just, just answer me this. When can I have a bout? And he said to me, listen, lad, you don't fucking ask me when you're going to have a bout. 12 to 18 months, I think you'll be ready. On that note, I was like, see you after. I've had enough of this. I'm off. Left there. This was the second gym I left. I leave there and I go to a place called Stockbridge ABC. Uh, I meet a guy who was working on the door for me, dad at the time, called Mark Kinney. Uh, I walk into his gym, <clears throat> he puts me on a bag, Same again, let's have a look at you, let's see what you can do, bang, 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 takes me on pads, bang, 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 everything's flying, and he was like, I can't believe you never had a bout, I said, when can I have a bout? He said, you'll be fighting within a few weeks, and I was like, really? And he went, yep, next session I went back, I was sparring, session after that, like there was no stand there, laying this jab, laying the right hand technique, I could just do it. And it's from watching guys like your Mike Tyson, your Roy Jones Jr.'s, fighters like that, I was like, I admired. I would watch the Olympic Games, I would watch fighters and various people, and, and I would just keep studying and studying because I, I liked watching boxing. I just didn't like the training side of it. I didn't want to kill myself day in, day out. So, yeah, I once went to and walked into Stockbridge and was with Mark. The bouts came pretty quickly in France. Oh, you started there? You started boxing? Well, start, my first fight was at Stockbridge. Got gotcha. you see? So people really think I was a rotunda all the way yeah. through. <clears throat> I had four fights at Stockbridge ABC. Fight a guy called Rob Beachy, my first ever amateur fight at the Hyden Suite for Stockbridge ABC. I'd been boxing now for 
four weeks, maybe six tops. I'd been into stop with JBC and uh, get in the ring. I was, I, I've only ever been nervous for two fights in my life. This was mm. one of them. I got to the scales, the way and the way then, I think it was like a way in a five o'clock, six o'clock. <clears throat> and I'd never knew what an amateur weigh-in was. I'd never been to an amateur show before. Yeah. It's the first time I'd ever been to an amateur boxing show and seen what happened. Guys seeing the doctor gets on the scales and everyone in the gym at this stage is thinking, people thought I was far more advanced than I had bouts than I had. And even the lads in the gym, before they even had a bout, they were like, this kid can really fight. And I was like, I haven't had a fight yet. You don't know what the fuck I can do. And I turned up at the way and this kid had a hairy chest. That's the most thing I remember. This Rob Beach had a hairy chest and I barely had any fluff on my bollocks, never mind chest. And I remember looking at him and thinking, how am I going to fight him? He had a hairy face. Mate, there wasn't a fucking speckle. I didn't even have any sort of moustache. No, I was a late developer. And then the look at him thinking, what, what is going on? Mark he said, don't worry, you know, he's had, he's had two bouts. He's won one, lost one. He's like you. And I was like, he's not like, he's a man. I was like, I'm 15. And at that age, I think it's 15 to 17. It's cadet age. Yeah. Well, he was on the back end of 17 and I'm a young 15 and I'm thinking the difference here is massive. But, when you looked at us aesthetically, physically, you, you'd think he is a bit of a man. And this kid's a, a, ch a chubby fat kid. Yeah. Uh, my first fight was at 13 stone, eight pound, if I remember correctly. So just under, around 90 kilos. Yeah. Or it might have been, no, 30, about 86, anywhere between 86 and 90 kilos, wherever it was. And and at that weight, sorry to bite in, at that, so my first fight was 51 kilos when I was 12, right? So... I stopped the kid and take him around mm -hmm. to the hospital. <laughs> Fossil. Yeah, mate, mate. Honestly, my first three fights knocked them all out. Man, I, was, I was a killer. Um, but, like, when you're 12, you shouldn't really be able to hit that hard. No. But when you're 15 and 90 kilos, mate, it hurts, right? So, like, just remember, so when I was 12, first I was sparring, you get hit and you don't really get hurt, but you get, like, shocked because you get hit for the first time ever. But when you get hit at 90 kilos, it, Oh, it's right. Like you feel you you know you're getting hit. Now that I think back, it was 86 kilos. But yeah, I'm walking around at 90 kilos. I remember having fish fingers for a week to get down from 90. It was 86. That's what's just come back to my mind now. Uh, yeah, you know what? Getting hit never bothered me in me whole of my life. Like you see kids have a fight in school, or they go right, come on, it's me and you. Let's do this. And you'd see the nervous or someone to go. Someone offers you out, you go after school. You you you've had it. And I'd see my mates like. I'd see it happen and they'd go missing. Like, they'd phone in more and more. I'm, I feel sick coming from the other school. <laughs> take the other exit. Yeah, go, take yeah. the other exit. Where's he gone? Where's Bobby gone? And, and, made and I'd be like, if someone would have me, I'd go, sound. I'm looking forward to this. It would, it would excite me genuinely. Uh, they never made me nervous fighting and stuff like that. But I'd say that first fight, I was genuinely nervous purely because I thought I'm fighting a man and I'm still a boy. Went in the ring anyway, and uh, just it was windmills. The two of us just went crazy swinging windmills. I forgot all about the jab, the straight right hand, the left hook, the body, all the things I was doing in the gym that were impressing everyone. I was picking shots to the body, I was picking shots to the head. I just went and lost my rag, just started swinging. He cops me, I copped him. Thankfully enough, a right hook comes around the side in the third round, clips him on the chin and bum feast down. Uh, so my first fight was a knockout win. And then you fell in love? Eh... Uh, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I liked the feeling of I can knock someone out. Uh, I'd actually done it. I, I dropped people in the gym sparring and I thought, I wonder what you're doing after you dropped them. Because you dropped them in, in the gym when you're sparring. It's like, oh, okay, give them a rest. 
let's wait in a fight it's like drop and go and finish him and, and I enjoyed that part of it after that uh, I think three or four weeks later I had my second bout against a guy and I do remember this one called Ryan Connolly uh, and my friends knew who he was I never knew who he was he was from the area he was supposed to be a bit of an hard case once again 18 months older than me or so and this time I could choose me walkout music and I was top of the bill on the amateur bill in my second amateur fight and it was just like this is mad as I'm walking out, I've got rap music on, I forget the song that I had on, but it was something, motherfuck this, bitch that, kill this, I'm going to do that, do this. I've walked out and uh, 20 seconds have gone by, I've thrown it one, two, missed, he's thrown a jab, I've stepped to the side, 29 seconds, one right hand, bump, hits him on the chin, flat on his back, out like a light. And then that's when the, the extravagant stuff starts coming in there. I was getting on ropes. I am the best you lot ever <laughs> see in here. I am a monster. I am an animal. You have never seen nothing like me. The coach had come in, Mark, and he's having killed. Me kind of show yourself. Uh, and yeah, that's where it was born there from that. That it was the first clean knockout I got. Because I'll say the first one at the beach, I've stopped him on his feet. I've dropped him, but then he's got up and the referee's, oh, that's enough. This one, it's a whack on the button. He's done. He's out. Yeah. He ain't getting up. Yeah. He's out like a light. Count to 100. Yeah, he was done. This puts it into context now. I was sparring a fighter called Gary Lockett. I'd only, <laughs> had, I'd only had two bouts and I was sparring Gary Lockett and he hit, he hit me. Welsh body shot. Yep, the Welshman. Yeah. Uh, four for the middleweight tight. Yeah, good fight. Real good fight. Yeah. I was sparring him after two f amateur fights and he said, you are way, way advanced for where you should be. He said, I know I'm middleweight and you're at this stage, I'm now a light heavyweight. I've lost a bit more weight. And he says to me, you don't understand how far advanced you are. You shouldn't be able to keep with me. Well, this day, he touched me with an uppercut and went smack into me ribs. Didn't drop me. Straight away, I felt a pain. And I went, ooh, good shot, but he was like, come on, let's keep going. We were flying and banging away at him. And uh, three or four days later, I had a bout. I was sparring this. It was my last spar before I was going to box. Gets in the ring. Cunliffe. His name was Cunliffe from Wigan ABC. Well, I don't know. Fuck, that's just come back to me. In amateur boxing, you never get ready for a body shot because very few fights. Oh, throw Comes out. He's got a guard like this. Typical amateur style. Throws the jab and was whacked with a right hand right in my rib where Gary Lockett had bruised. And he cracked me rib. So I've still got the chicken rib sticks out to this day. Uh, goes back to the corner, says to Mark, can he mark? I think he's broke me rib. Mark says, what do you mean? I said, just, I feel it. It's a weird feeling. He has to lift up me vest, lifts up the vest. It was like a circle of blood under the skin. Ooh. And I was like, that, that, that's so. So the fella down in the corner, he's going, stop the fight. You know, this is dangerous. I said, shut up you. I said, you haven't got a clue. Uh, I said, Mark, just give me one round. I said, I'll get rid of this kid in this round. Thankfully enough, once again, it goes out and it stops this kid on his feet. I was nailed him with the right hand. He's completely gone, but he's on his feet now. Done it again. So at this stage now, I'm 3 and 0. I think I'm on top of the world. It's great. Uh, I get scheduled for a fourth fight. I go back to heat waves. I get matched with a boy called James Boyd. Uh, you, I'm sure you will have known you boxed in with him. This kid goes on this year, he wins the ABAs. The full ABAs, athletes, every, I'm boxing this kid in my fourth amateur fight. Gets in the ring with him and we're back and forth to each other. He's probably outboxing me, but I'm roughing him up and I'm getting close and I'm hurting him. So he kept, he's talking to me in the fight and I've never experienced this before. And uh, as I've got my head in close, we're rubbing close and I've whacked him two body shots and he just leaned away and he went and spat in my face. Oh. 
Tell you absolute scumbag. So the referee didn't do anything about it. So as we get closer again, he's come in and I've just gone smash as hard as I possibly could. Me fodder right into his nose. He jumps back and the referee just said, get out. He just told me out the ring, yeah. The referee told me out. So he get disqualifies me. And me coach at the time says, you, you were... A part of him once thought, knew I was right. From one spits in your face, it's like... I should have kept them really, to be honest. Uh, but I didn't, I bothered him. And when the referee saw me out, so I looked at Mark and I was like, what am I supposed to do in, in these kind of situations? Time goes on and I was fuming, I was furious, but at that stage... What, a few, a few was at yourself, at him, at the situation? At him, I, I, I suppose when I look back, I'm the idiot who, who rose to it. But it's only hindsight where you can go back and look and think that. And and, and at the time you were a kid, right? Yeah. Kid. So he was, at the time I was 16. Yeah, a baby. Yeah, like 16, yeah. early 17. Mm. Uh, and I was like, that that's not for me. Yeah, 17 I was. So I've been, yeah, boxed quite a few times now. Uh, so at 17, it's like, what am I going to do? And then uh, Mark Kinney, the coach at the time, head coach of Stockford JBT, he says he gets a job in Jaguar. Now, this is where the change comes. He gets this job in Jaguar. And at this stage now, I've had four amateur fights. It's Michael. Most of Liverpool know me after four amateur fights because I'm the lunatic who knocks people out and shouts and screams, he's the best ever. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I was outspoken, I was loud. Uh, and Mark gets this job in Jaguar and he works shifts. So he works at two till eight. Uh, so that means he can't train me for one week. He works a six till two. That week he can work, he can... He can train me in that week. And then the final one is an, uh, an 11 or 11 till 6 in the morning, something like that. So two shifts a week, two weeks out of the four, he can't train me. And I'm like, he was a brilliant coach, by the way, fantastic. Went on to do great things with the UFC, coaching Michael Bisping with boxing, with Rampage Jackson with boxing. Uh, he's a great fellow who I'm still in touch with today. And he just said, I've got to take this job, and He said, this is what I'm going to do. I said, okay, Sam, no problem. With my tail between my legs, I goes back to Rotunda ABC. Uh, and I was like, I've had a few bouts now, can I come back? And Jimmy was like, I'll let you know if you can come back. Do a few weeks, let's see if you can keep up with the training. Mark Kinney's words when he spoke to Jimmy was, this lad is going to be an ABA champion, I will guarantee you. He'll probably be a world champion. He could say that after four amateur fights. How he knew that, I don't know. He says also, he'll do anything you ask him to do when it comes to boxing. But try and get him to turn up for a run try and get him to do circuits, try and get him to live by a diet, you're going to have a problem. So upon Mark telling Jimmy that, I had to do twice as much running and twice as many circuits. Fucking absolute horror. Uh, but going to Rotunda at this stage then, that changed everything. Yeah. That's when I started to... It was only under Jimmy Albertina that I believed I could become something in Yeah. He was, I mean, I, ne I never met him, but I've heard you talk very hardly about him and all the boys in Rotunda and girls. Yeah. Special man, right? Oh, Special man. Amazing. I couldn't put into words how amazing he was. Mm. Uh, his, his sons now run. I'm at Rotunda ABC, uh, Michael and James, but just uh, an amazing man. Mm. He saved so many lives. Yeah. Uh, in the in the north end of Liverpool, where we are off Scotty Road, uh, it's a it's a tough place. And Jimmy kept us all on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Every single one was them four walls. I've saved so many lives, yeah. uh, and the the man inside them four walls, I should say, that was a big huge factor was down yeah. to him. I get tingles when hearing that because there's people you know success. People like think success is 
winning medals or winning belts or earning a lot of money. Success is keeping that kid from being in prison, for stabbing somebody, you know, giving him some structure, giving him, letting him believe in himself, you know, like self-respect, respect for other people. That's that's success. And as I said, I never met the man, but I have heard you talk so highly of him and yeah, sound like a great man. The greatest person I've ever had time to spend with, I don't feel his name is spoken about enough in our city and highly enough. Uh, there should be a statue of Jimmy Albertina for what he's created and what he achieved. He was amazing, mate, even he was. So him, I wasn't going to talk about this, but this is brought up. Him, obviously, unfortunately, passed in that way. Was that obviously a massive setback for yourself? That's the first time I I, uh, I feel proper despair. That's the first time I feel grief, I think, in my mm. life. Uh, I'm, I'm, How old are you? Looking back, when Jimmy passed away, probably 19, 20. So still a young man, still laudable. That was hard when Jimmy passed away. That's the first time grief hits us as a gym. I remember Paul Smith phoning me and saying, Jimmy's dead. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, Jimmy's dead. He told me on the phone. I remember just sobbing, sobbing for days and days, mate. That was the first time. What you said a minute ago earlier there, like when you left Stockbridge and went to Rotunda, Jimmy Albertine was the first person that made you believe that you could do something and yeah. be something. Now, Jimmy like instilled that in you. Now, what did he do to make you believe in yourself that you could do something? Now, what was that something? What Jimmy done is push me to levels and limits that I never knew I could get to. You, yeah. I, I never believed I could. I knew that I worked hard, I was willing to train, but I was always training to a point where I was within myself. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I wasn't getting pushed to the moment. Like, I'd never been pushed at this stage to the point of spewing up yeah. in training. I'd never ran. I'd had a speed or, or done certain things to get me to the stage of, I can't breathe. Literally cannot breathe. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I got them feelings at the Sunday. And when I when I'd surpassed them moments and get through them, I would get there again. And this time I would be a little bit further than I was the previous time. And it, this kept happening over and over again. But it, it happened in such a quick succession at Rotunda that I didn't look back. So my first bout for Rotunda... Straight away, I'm in at Everton Park. Uh, they stuck me in the Novice Championships, two under tens. At this stage, I've only had four bouts. Uh, I goes in, and I just renders the kid unconscious. It was just I'd I'd, I'd been at, at a good level, and people were looking at me thinking this kid's really good. When I went there, I became so completely some different. I I had I, yes, I could always box. I'm not going to say like Jimmy Timmy into this great punchy overnight. Cause that's not how it worked. What he gave me is an unbelievable engine and an unbelievable amount of belief in myself. Yeah, I which is key, right? Which is key to anything in life. Being successful, you need to believe in yourself, and you've you've displayed like enormous amounts of belief when others didn't believe. Yes, in your career, and that was obviously instilled in that in that pivotal time of your life. That was the perfect time. It was him who, who maybe who instilled that belief in me because I worked so hard under him that I was like. No one's working as hard as me. So coaches don't just teach you to jab, and in any sport, but coaches don't just teach you to jab or the back end or the uppercut. They teach you things about yourself, don't they? Like the great coaches teach you, like teach you that you can do this. Without doubt, he was a father figure to many of us. Now, my dad, I had a brilliant father. Yes, he left home when I was ten, uh, but he was still a big, big, massive part of my life. Uh, but Jimmy was like, he give you things that your father wouldn't give. So my dad would never tell me I, I'm. I'm great or I'm this or I'm that, but I knew he thought it. And, and, and what my dad wanted to have was the hardest kid on the block. And, and to be fair, like it ended up working out. He got the fucking hardest kid on the block. So, mate, unbelievable amateur career. Yeah. Um, I've never spoke about it in that depth. 
Yeah, listen, mate, I've, I, I enjoyed that. Good I enjoyed it. I wanted this to be more of a, of a live podcast, but hearing you talk so passionately about it and me remembering it myself, it was like, they were great times. How much of boxing was brilliant? We were a team, we ran around the world, mm -hmm. we had a good laugh, being in camps, being in dorms, being in hotels together. It was amazing. Uh, but that changes me, as you know, when you're 10 professional. It does. Because we can't see come to business. Yeah. It's not a sport anymore. It's not, a, they're not teammates no more. Uh, people become jealous and think that you're getting given things that you're not, that you've had to learn. And yeah, everyone forgets, mate. So I want to talk to you about some stuff I don't think I've heard you talk about before, right? So, mate, growing up, Tony Bell, you in Liverpool in the 80s, like, what was that like? Because, like me, as I said earlier, you've got a lot of similarities. Um, you're a mixed race. Yep. Mum's black, dad's white. And people, I don't think everyone, for example, I was talking to some friends um, two days ago and I said, I'm doing my podcast about you yeah. um, on next week. And so I want to I kind of go a bit deep, not just a general, like, oh, knock them out, knock them out. I said, I want to I talk about race. Okay. And my mate, PJ, is mixed race. Yeah. My mate, Dave, is, is white. And PJ went, the black one, he went, why? I went, because Bowie's well, mixed race. And he went, is he? He had no idea. <laughs> and as, as flummoxed, flummoxed, fucking weird word. Never said that word before in my entire life. What does that mean? As, as, as baffled, as confused as he I've never said it before in my entire life. Flummoxed? As, as baffled as he was by you being mixed race, Dave was equally baffled that he didn't know you were mixed race. So he was like, oh, he's definitely mixed. And he, so I was like, so growing up in Liverpool, mate, like in the 80s, like from a mixed marriage, bl black mum, white dad, that's very uncommon because my mum, my dad is Nigerian. He came over from Africa in my little small town where I'm from in Lowestoft. Generally, he was the first black person most people had ever seen, like in real life, right? And I know, I can't imagine Liverpool being too diverse back then. What was it like growing up? Uh, I've always wondered what it's like. I don't know, Paul Cash, not long ago with a guy called David Howard. He's an actor and, and I want to speak to him because... His thing is a lot about race, and he's born very similar times to my mother. So I want to, I've never spoke to him about what racism is like for you growing up. You just, you just, you just go on day to day life. Don't you don't really speak about this? So I want to speak to him to kind of find out what my mother's youth might have been like. Yeah, and it's obviously very tough for someone like me. Uh, was your mum born here? Yes, my mum was born here. So my granddad came over here. He was an American. He was in the American uh, Navy. And he come over here. Was already married. Little knows of my my lovely little grandmother. Uh, come over here, impregnated me. Now married here while he was also married in the states, and then fucked off back to the states after he'd finished. So uh, yeah, me grandmother. We shouldn't laugh, mate. Uh, fuck, shouldn't laugh. Right? It's fucking. You know, it's just it's a man in there. He's a man. And he's fucked up. Uh, but he never got to see me granddad. Now it's mad because we're from. My name is obviously Bellew, and that's from my dad's side, and they're the, a white Irish. My name originates from a place called Mount Bellew, so I'm told. But my mother's side uh, were native Indians. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, my granddad's like navy blue. He's that black. Well, he was. He passed away now. So, I mean, that my mum's mum's white. So, yeah, I'm a mixed race. Uh, people growing up in Liverpool, the south of Liverpool is pretty mixed. You know, uh, there's large parts of South Liverpool that are predominantly black, uh, whereas North Liverpool, where they're boxed, is predominantly white. Very few brothers in the north end of the city. In the south end, we're everywhere. And people always... It's mad because <clears throat> growing up in the south end, I think the black lads looked at me as if I was white, mm -hmm. and the white people looked at me as if I was black. 
That's why I'd, I'd write, similar to myself, like gone mixed race, black dad, white mum. And it's, it's, it's not a little fucking little pigeonhole we sit in. We're not quite white, we're not quite black, but what, like, what is it? What are you? you know? Did you I, struggle with that? Like, yeah, I think I, did you want to fit into I, one category or were you happy just being totally both? You do and you don't. Uh, I don't just are what you are. Know. So I, I, I figured out of, I loved rap music. I loved, I always wanted a gold chain. So at a certain age, I went out and bought myself a fucking big thick gold chain. Uh, I wanted nice things, but is that because, is that the black side of me? Is that the white side of me? Is that, I don't know. It's just, I didn't, I stopped looking at it as, as a black or a white thing. It's just me. It's the way I am. Uh, so yeah, I don't care who I, I, who I identify with or who relates me to what. What am I? I like to think I'm just a decent person. I don't give a shit. Black, white, pink, yellow, black, me, me little brother is, is gay. Now, and come on to this. Trust me, mate. He had it tough because he's, he's, he's a bit a shade darker than you. Now, being black and being gay in the fucking late 80s, early 90s, that's a fucking hard ride. It really, really is, especially when my father is who he was. is known as a hard man. Uh, that, that's very tough. So, race has played, it's, it's, it's part of my life, like, when I've heard racism, like going to the North End and being in, and being around boxing and stuff like that, I'd hear all the jokes, the c or the that or this and that, and, and they'd be like, some of them would say in front of me and feel comfortable, but then you'd have to get in the boxing room with me and I'd knock the fuck out of you, and I'd absolutely hate you. And then other people, like, the, 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 there's racism goes on both sides, believe it or not. I know everyone likes to say it's white on black all the time, but listen, it's black on white. Also, I've seen that go down on, on a number of occasions. I've seen lads get fucking given hidings because you're in the wrong area at the wrong time. Uh, so it goes both ways. It really, really does. But for me, I don't identify with either. Uh, I'm just a just you, man. Yeah, I'm just me, mate. I, I really am. As you know, I think my me, me sister-in-law prefers to me as being black. Uh, she'll say, you're black to me. And I'll go, well, that sound. I say, but I, I'm just me. Uh, I'm as much black as I am white, so how do I define one or the other? I'm just me, mate. I'm mixed race. I'm as proud as being black as I am as being white. Man, another similarity we've got. So my sister is also gay. She's married uh, a woman and I actually conducted the wedding. I married them both to each other, which is one of the proudest moments of my life. And having a gay sister has made me a better person because like yourself, like, I don't give a fuck who you are, what you look like, who, you, who, who your God is, if you've got a God, if you haven't got a God, um, who you have sex with. As long as you're a decent person, then I don't give a fuck. I do it. But it made me more of an understanding person because, like, knowing that my sister, what, what she went through growing up, confused, always knowing she was lesbian, but she kind of had boyfriends because she thought that's what she was meant to do. Yeah. That made me a better, more understanding, humble person. Okay. I think, similar for yourself? Uh, for me, it was different because my little brother, like, we knew he was gay at probably 11 years of age, which was very difficult because, like, our Liam is not someone who's hiding gay like a year around Liam before you fucking see him. You know, he, he's loud, he's out there, he's fucking, he is me, he's, he's just, he's, that's the way he is, but, so that was tough. Uh, and being said, being black as well. Yeah. In that time. I'm sure that didn't fucking help the fucking matter yeah. as well, so, yeah, he's got, all he's been called every single thing under the sun that you could possibly imagine. Me dad tried absolutely everything with him from trying in private schools, uh, he had a really good voice as a singer as a kid, uh, he could dance, he could sing, all that kind of shit he could do. And then when my dad goes to jail for the second time, uh, the private school stops, and then he goes to a normal school, and then that's when the trouble starts. 
and when your outfielders locked up and then you're the fucking man of the house because Miguel, the two brothers have left. It's tough, you know, you're fighting all the time. That's why I say, I didn't choose fighting, fighting definitely chose me. I was put on this earth to fight me. Uh, because when you put in them situations, your dad's in jail, uh, your two elder brothers, one's living, not not living at home, the other one's gone to university. Uh, it's fight season, mate, and you fight to defend your brother. I've heard you talk about your dad a lot, that you said today in, in other interviews. I haven't heard you talk about your mum that much. Yeah. Is that because you feel like you want to protect her, or is that because... Odds, listen, my mum doesn't need protecting me. She's a sister who can fight. Uh, no. <laughs> I just... I just That's the tagline. I, yeah. A sister who can fight. <laughs> Fucking love that. Uh, she's... My mum's my mum, you know what I mean? She's just... She she does what she does. You always say, like, you often talk about how tough your dad is. Right? Yeah. So you want to be like your dad, or impress your dad, choose a tough, and yeah. he run the doors in town. But your mum, like, you're one of the toughest folks I know. Yeah. Right? Mentally, physically, but do you get that from your dad or your mum? Because what your mum went through, you know, being a black woman in Liverpool in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, like, fuck, she would have been 100%, like, should have seen some shit, heard some shit, and she must have been like a tough woman to get through that. She's she's heard and seen it all. She's got a story. Uh, she's been through an awful lot, mate. And I say, when my dad fucks about and, and leaves when I'm 10 years old, uh, she's raising four boys on her own. Yeah. Raising for one of them being you, <laughs> yeah, me being the second to youngest. Uh, it was tough, it really was, you know, very, very hard times. I'd say that, but don't get me wrong, my father was not someone like a father who's fucked off and left, and he still provides every single day. So she never has to worry about bills or paying for things because my dad sorts that. But the loneliness of being on her own was hard, man. You, you know, your mum's every night sitting there listening to Whitney Houston songs and cries so to sleep on the couch which is fucking tough. And that goes on for two years. And and at this stage now, my brothers have, not fed up of listening to it, but we're all, you know, but it's so hard. I couldn't imagine the times that she went through to get through that period in her life. Yeah. Very, very hard. Yeah. And my dad caused that. But what can you do? Uh, there's nothing you can do, but she's a tough woman, mate. She really yeah. is. She's had, she worked the jobs uh, for Liverpool City Council as a receptionist in the sports centres. She's been racially abused numerous times uh, in that sports centre. Uh, by, I remember one instance, a man, uh, a big fellow with ginger hair, come in and called her every c get under the sun. And there was a man behind the desk with me mother. And uh, he let it go. He, he wouldn't come out to him. And, and this fellow was a black guy like me mum. Uh, I'd known him. He's a friend of the family for a long time. He should have went out and filled me. Yeah. But he didn't. He let it ride. This fellow called me mother every single name under the sun. This guy was a someone. This guy was a local big drug dealer, or so I'm told. And because my mum wouldn't let him into the gym for some reason, he labelled, called it every racial name under the sun. Well, this man then turned up at my dad's nightclub uh, where he was running the door on, on a Saturday night, uh, and thought he was going to put it on my outfield as well. He, he had a, a nasty outcome. <laughs> he, he was left in a... He got his comeuppance. He got his comeuppance. He was left in a real bad way, and his car was left, was taken off. He, drove, he literally he was that cocky and confident. He drove up to the front of the nightclub Jumped out of his car, let's have it. Yeah, I feel like give him an absolute hide. So the story goes, so I'm told. Uh, and my cousin took the four wheels off his car and put it on bricks. He smashed his car to bits. And that was the end of that. But these are the kind of situation scenarios that go on in our city. From And, and, and at this stage, my dad's long left home, but he wouldn't have anyone to solve. Of course, his like, kid like that. My dad would, would die for the mother of his kids. Mm-hmm. My dad still adores my mother. Uh, the, the two of them are apart now, are alone now and apart. And they'll never ever go back together, but 
my dad, my dad still adores me. It's still on. It's always his greatest regret yeah. what he done. So I always try and learn from other people's mistakes. My father's greatest regret was, was what he done from leaving home. So yeah. there's, a, there's a great quote like, uh, "Good people learn from their own mistakes, but great people learn from other people's mistakes. They don't make the mistakes themselves, that they learn from people." And you said something. Live by that. You said something in an interview I watched. You said your dad. He said he was a great dad, just wasn't that good at the husband stuff. Yeah. Which was a great way of putting it. I never heard that before. I thought that makes sense. You know, he was not. He was still great for you and, and your brothers, but just wasn't great enough. Man, that's good. Brilliant, brilliant father, but just shitty husband. Mate, you can't keep your dick in your pants. Don't get married. But this is this is life, and, and you just have to not accept it. But but when you look back now, look where it's got. It's his greatest ever regret, and, and he lives. You know, got a good life, nice little house, all sorted and done for. Same as my mum, both of them, mortgage-free. Good. But uh, at the same time, uh, he lives alone, mate, because of the mistakes that he's made. And I, I hope to never, ever make them mistakes. Well done, mate. Well done. So, switching gears a little bit, this city, Liverpool, is fucking magical, right? And I come from a small town called Lowestoft, hours away, and like I used to look at Rotunda and Salisbury and, and, and Kirkdale with a lot of envy, and jealousy because I look at this and think the camaraderie you guys have I've heard you saying like, you're a scouser first before anything yes. right? and like like what like like what is it about this city that makes it so magical makes it such like a because there's no place like this in the UK people aren't places aren't like this in the UK like that kind of like the community aspect isn't really there much anymore but this place has retained it. A big factor is that, that we feel like we've been fighting for years and, and that draws us closer. So whether it's talking about Hillsborough, whether it's talking about, you know, certain incidents that have gone on the talk of riots, uh, the city fights back. We're not a city that lies down and accepts it. And I think you just inherit that as you grow up here. Being from Liverpool is different from being any, from anywhere else. I do get that, I understand it. But at the same time... Uh, you still have the fucking hate within home here. Yeah. You still have people uh, saying you can't do it. My whole life I've been told I can't do something. That's the only thing that's driven me from the start to the finish. Fucking hell. I remember my mum saying, why don't you just get the normal job? Because you're not, you're too nice. She me, you're not nasty enough. Did you not watch you fight? <laughs> Did you not yeah, see you? I've become nasty enough when I get away from it. Trust me, and I don't think she realised how horrible I could be until I left home. Because I was, all, I'm, when I go home, like, that's just the difference what I'm saying. I'm Tony when I'm in boxing environments. When I'm in boxing gyms, I'm Tony. That's just who I am. When I'm in a home or I'm around my own people and my, and my family, I'm Anthony. And I'm, I'm, I'm always Anthony around my mother. It was, wasn't until she seen me leave home and become a man and then that horrible cunt that I can be, that's when she's realised who I am. That's when she's realised I can be that. And I think it, it took me to leave home, stand on my own too, fight back and forth, wins, losses in the amateurs, for her to realise, you know what, I think that man could do anything he wants to do. I heard you do an interview um, yeah. a while back and you said that, uh, you said a three-time ABA champion and you didn't think you'd ever do that. You didn't think you ever going to be good enough to do that, right? What happened in that to make you go from doubting your own ability to win a national title to becoming a boxing megastar? I've got to. I've got kids now. They, they were the drive that's the drive and the motivation that drives the kids and the wife uh, I, I'm not saying it is no longer good enough just talking about it and saying I can do this I can do that I've got to do it that's where that drive it's just different when you have kids 
I put them kids on this plan. Didn't ask to be put here. Uh, they didn't come here through choice. I put them on this plan and made it my choice to make, to, to to give them the best of what I can possibly give them. So when they're born, it changed absolutely everything. I've always been the hardest worker. I'm not, like you saying before, I could swim, I could run, I could play football. That, yeah, I can, try, I can do all them, but I ain't doing anything that good because I'm not a good athlete. And that's just the top and bottom of it. What I have is an insane desire and determination. I will go further than anyone else. I will, I will fucking hell. The sparring sessions that I would I would draft in sparring partners who could knock fuck out of me. And, and you, you could knock fuck out of me enough where I wouldn't come back the next day. I'm not willing to give in. I'm yeah. not willing to back down. And that's just an insane desire and, and the way I'm driven. I don't know where it comes from. Yeah. I, I think part of it's from me dad and part of it's from my mum. But I know. Growing up tough and talk stuff. Yeah. Really and, nice. I, and it's mad because I haven't grown up. Like, I'm not a kid who grew up with nothing. I never went without. We, you know... I didn't have everything we wanted. No kid does, but I wasn't skint and I, I, I fucked mate. I was fed. You you look at me ass, you fucking knew I was fed, mate. Uh, I had decent clothes on my back. My dad, my father provided. My mother gave me everything which she possibly could. It just, and I don't know, I say I don't know where it comes from because there's only so much I see in my mother and father. There's a different side to me where I'll, I'll do anything to get what I wanted. That's why people say, where would you be if you never boxed? I'd be locked up or dead. The only reason I'm not is because of the kids. Mate, let's go into the pro career. Yep. The exciting, sexy stuff. Uh, you turned pro at 27 years old? Correct. Man, the mad thing was, when you started your pro career, I was done. I'm, I had to retire at 27. That's when I had my eye. So, like, it's fucking nuts, isn't it? It's nuts how everything you did of no, you know, in your boxing career. And, you know, I was... I remember thinking you should have been right next to us because I was late turning pro because I always wanted to go my plan was to go I knew I was never good enough to win an Olympic medal I knew I was never good enough to win a European Championship medal what I did think I was good enough for was to win a Commonwealth gold and my my always my plan was to bounce off the back of a Commonwealth gold straight into the pros 2006 yep yeah, that was my plan and then when I didn't get picked uh, I was furious I was reigning ABA champion that year David Dolan I could accept that David Dolan got picked over because he beat me twice but when he got knocked out by Alizar Elkin at the World Championship in Azerbaijan, he got stopped, knocked out cold. I, I got a phone call at the time, and uh, it was off a senior official in, in England. He says to me, you're going to Commonwealth Games. And I said, really? He said, David Dolan's been knocked out bad in the World Championships of, of Elkin. You'll go to the Commonwealth Games. So I trained like a maniac. I was working really hard. And then when the selection came, they picked Danny Price over me. I knew just because Terry didn't like me. Yeah. Uh, and Danny was a good fighter. Yeah, decent, uh, Danny yeah. Danny was a brilliant little boxer. He really, really was. And we, when we boxed and went on each other, I think he, he beat me by one point in an ABA final. And some will say that's justice, but watch it back and see what you think. But I didn't get picked. And then I lost all love for amateur boxing. Yeah. I absolutely despised the setup. I hated it. I went against everything that they said and done. I just completely fell out of love with amateur boxing. Uh, and then that's when... I always knew I was going professional, but I was supposed to be on the back of them games. Stuck around for a bit longer, got an offer off Mick Hennessy, went and met him. Tony Sims arranged once to manage me and train me. Uh, and went down, had a chat with him and just thought, I'm earning more staying on the system because I was on the GP funding and then I was getting extra funding from the Pill City Council uh, doing an apprenticeship accountant. Uh, and I was just there and I thought, I've now got, did I have... 
no, Kobe was on his way. I'm sure she was pregnant. And I said, uh, no, I, cu I couldn't have, I couldn't have, I was scared. I had a mortgage at this stage. And I was like, I've got to pay the mortgage every month. Uh, I turned pro. And then that was it, mate. So the first time you went down in your, in your boxing career, a flash knocked down Bob Adjusef. There was one before that. Was it really? One against a guy called Javengus Andrejevs. He was a southpaw journeyman. But it, you know what? No, it wasn't because it wasn't a knockdown. It was more of a balance. So the first proper knockdown, you're right, does come against Bob Adjusef. A little short, little backhand, and he kind of did like a little shove. I mean, you were kind of wobbly, but you can give you a little shove to kind straight of make down, sure. Straight down. I was southpaw facing all docks. I've come square on, boom, straight down the pipe, just sits me down. Yeah. Uh, at that stage, I always knew I was vulnerable making nice headways, I'm not going to lie. So, well, well, I'm going to come on to that because people, like, I want the non-boxing, like, listeners to this to really understand what it's like, you know. I want people to understand that people that saw you against against Stevenson, people would have thought, he's never going to become, like, a world champion. At the way above, we can't take a shot from Stevenson. How's, but it's not about that, is it? Like, that's not, like, making weight is probably, I had, a lot of injuries in my career. My eye eventually went, um, which ended my career. But even prior to the eye, I had three shoulder dislocations, four kidney surgeries. And a lot of that, I think, is because I was kept making middleweight. And I was I was rinsing my body in training camps. When I got to the fight, I was fine. Makes on you. Right, spot on. Um, I had that with light heavyweights. You're absolutely spot on. Your body betrays you when you need yeah. it, when you need it the most. And if you keep punishing your body, detracting from your body, brutalising it, basically... I used to cannibalise my own body. I would ease away my body. Yeah. Uh, Man, that's a great way of putting it. That's a that's that's literally that's what we do, right? To boil down from wherever to make whatever. That's what you, you cannibalise your own body. Fighters are the best lies in the world because we lie to ourselves. Yeah. We kid the bollocks of ourselves. We tell ourselves. Walking to press conferences and let me tell you, at a press conference, no one feels fucking great, especially when you're the week of a fight. No one's your mouth's dry. You feel tired, haven't eaten a meal probably in four weeks. And we get there, feel great. Best camp I've ever had. Probably just broke my hand in the last sparring session. I've got a banging fucking headache. My weight's not coming down the way we're it needs to. But next fight. Yeah. And you sit there going, best, best camp I've ever had. I can't wait. I want, you're going to see the best display ever. This is going to be the best me. I'm this and that. You might as well just fucking, if you stuck a lie detector on them while they're talking, then press covers. But. Uh, that's what we do as fighters. We just we hide, we hide it, and we and we lie to each other. We lie to ourselves. Uh, to be fair, I was very. It was only at the end, the last three fights, I started telling the truth. Literally, I press conference and I remember Eddie saying, "You can't say that. Don't don't say that. That's not good." And I'd be like, "It's the truth." My head's all over. Like when I when I actually died, I was like, "My head's all over the place. Don't really want to be here. I just I don't want to fight." Uh, I like, can't say that. Don't don't say that. We're fucked. Absolutely fucked. If you say something like that, the fucking mental health will be on to us. We're fucking locked up. Uh, but it's just through all your career, we just lie, mate, and we just bullshit everyone. And, and that, as I say, that's what we do. But it's part and parcel of it. Making light every week was fucking killer. Yeah. It, when I got to thirty, that's when every my body physically changed. And it does. Well, I remember I was uh, I'd have been 21, 21, 22 on the GB squads uh, training the spinal car for watch you'd come out and spark quite a lot as well and I was talking to Foch and Foch was like maybe 32 and we were in, in, in the locker room in the change room and I was talking to him and he said mate he said you get to 30 mate it just everything's as hard he says it's like it's like 28, 29 you're fine 30 everything's hard I thought shut up Foch what the fuck are you talking about I got to 30 <laughs> you're fucking out and I thought that big dog's bastard was telling the truth 
it's just shit just changing when you get to there. I could, I could, but as soon as I hit 30, I couldn't make light heavyweight safely anymore. I, I was barely making it safely when I was 29, yeah. but at 30, it was now unsafe because the last four pounds weren't coming off. And it becomes unsafe. You said, so you did a great podcast with Trish Dixon, Trish Dixon's Boxing Life Stories. I'd recommend anybody go and listen to it. He asked you um, if you felt like you were going to become a world champion, um, even when you were back training with Arnie Final at the very beginning. And your response was, I already felt like I was a world champion. I love that. Where did that belief come from? Is it the kids again? You thought you had no choice but to become I've a world champion? It. I've got no choice. If anything other than a world title, I've failed and I can't live with myself. But did you act like, so like I, I did it, man. I was, I, I was a walking, talking, uncrowned Olympic champion when I was an amateur. I was a walking, talking, uncrowned world champion in my in my six years as a pro, but only two active years as a pro. And I felt like I was a world champion. I just haven't been crowned yet. That's how I genuinely felt. Um, is that how you felt? I was like, I knew, I knew. It gets to stage after certain fights, like I knew with the Adonis Stevens fight, that was the first fight that it crushed me the most. After the Cleverly one, I didn't think I lost. So I was like, I brushed myself off. Yeah. Sound. I, I, I don't think he beat me, and I still don't. But they're like, well, you have lost on paper. And I'm like, it was sound, I can live with that. After the Adonis Stevens one, that crushed me. With the Cleverly fight, you said you were pissing blood for a week after the fight. Was that because because the body shots? The body shots and the way the ma- made The way was, making. Yeah. Because I was pissed. I was, me, 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 when I pissed straight out the way, it was that dark. It looked like public. I was like, honey, pit. Like when, when, when you're with that dehydrated, you piss. It's orange. It's like it's like a, it's like a blacky, ready orange, isn't it? But it's I awful. was pissing blood after that fight. Yeah. Like, that's the first time it ever happened to me. I think got in the shower. And he'd landed numerous body shots on piss and blood, made it look nice. So, mate, going to the, the Stevenson World Title fight, I mean, you've lost, obviously, 41 against Cleverly, but you're obviously on the record, you've lost the fight. Now, fighting Stevenson, your wage range, you're fucked, you know. Well, where was your head at walking to the ring? Were you confident in your ability? Uh, no. I hadn't seen my wife for five weeks, and the first time I seen her five weeks was as I walked to the ring. She's in tears. I just see tears running down the side of her face, and she's right by the outer, outer ring. And then I walked to the ring, and that was it. Why was she crying? Just worried. I think she'd been getting abused when she arrived there from fans of Steelers and stuff like that. Yeah, just nasty shit, I think. I don't know why. We've never spoke about what went on, but she was not treated nicely. Uh, yeah, and. Walking to the ring for Stevenson, I knew, I knew I had one round in me, one decent round. Because fuck me, the way it killed me. Was that the first time you'd walked to a ring as a pro, not confident? It's not that I weren't confident. I thought I thought that one round was going to be enough. I I had the crazy, insane belief in myself. I just need one round against you, lad, and I'll take your fucking head off. Uh, but then reality hits, and, and he was so hard to it. He was fucking. Was he a good fighter? Brilliant. Yeah, just better than me. Mate. What 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 was good about him? Why was he good? His judgment at distance was yeah. perfect. And stuff like that, you can't like stuff like that. It's hard to win, like you, even the most, even the biggest boxing fan watching tape, you can't see that, can you? It takes you to be in the ring getting hit with those shots, so you realise how good how good somebody is, right? Same with Usyk. It's just it, he keeps a long stance with long legs as well, so he doesn't necessarily jump or step back far. It's just a little lean, and, and that that keeps his distance there and this distance away all the time. It's so hard to navigate my way to get close to him. The one round that I do, he hit me in the third round on the forehead and he hit me so hard I thought he crushed my skull. I heard a crunch and a clock. 
And as it landed on the floor, he's had just crushed my fucking skull. He banged. Oh, that was his hand breaking on my forehead. Fuck. But I'll never notice this day what it was. Obviously, my brain's kind of me, me, skull's fine, but he hit really hard. Did he? Did he hit hard, or was it because you were just so fucked that the weight that the power hurt? I never blame with me. I lost. But like you took punches from David Hay. David Hay punches yeah, like Miss right? the so, hardest puncher I've ever faced. Yeah, David Hay is the hardest puncher I've ever faced. You just every punch David throws, even David's jabs are rockets. Yeah. He's so so strong. With Adonis, uh, Adonis Stevenson, it was like. They were heavy thuds, but mate, they went through you. And don't get me wrong, it does, of course, doesn't help that I was killing myself to make weight. If I fight him at cruiserweight, I have no problem in saying I knock him spark. Well, Everyone's a world champion when they're talking. You go to America, you've been, go to American boxing gyms, you're around dozens of world champions. That's what you think, so when you're listening to them, but how many actual world champions is he in there? Fucking none. Uh -huh. but, they, but they all sound like world champions. Yeah. Did you ever, this is something I struggled with, for a long time, I was filled with like bitterness and jealousy, and like, and I know like being jealous of somebody or being bitter is like, is like eating shit and expecting them to taste it. It's only affecting you, right? And I knew that, but I still couldn't just shake out the oh, it's not fair. Why me? Why me? Why me? Did you ever experience any bitterness because like friends of yours, the Gale, you know, they went to Olympic Games, won a gold medal, price you, you know, a bronze medal. At the Olympic Games, all these guys now in the pros have become a world champion and loads of money, and you kept falling down at these hurd at these hurdles. Like, did you feel jealous? No, at all? I never felt that purely based on the fact of I always blame myself. So if I, I suppose I might have felt that if I wasn't harsh on myself, but I've always been my own worst critic. So I blame myself. Yeah. Uh, so no, I've never ever been a jealous person. Of why do I get this and he gets that? No. You didn't get it because you didn't work hard enough. It's the only way I look at it. So I never felt, and I've never, like I always struggled. There's lads who I've grown up with, lads who I've boxed in gyms with, lads who I've boxed around the world with, and I don't speak to them no more because they've slated me or slagged me behind my back. Now, why would you slate and slag me when you know I've never been given anything? I've worked for every single thing I've got. So things like hate and stuff like that does creep in, and, and I can't grasp and understand jealousy like me missus knows that I'm just not a, Jealous person, it's just not in me. I just don't. I don't know why. Jealousy is not one of my. Things. That's a great trait. That's a yeah, really good trait. So, and I like the fact you said the fact that like you don't become the way because everything is down to you. Yeah, it no. is everything. Me all surround. I'm a product of my environment. Every everything that I've got around me is because I was willing to work for it. It's not a coincidence why I have some of the nicer things that I have. It's not a coincidence why. I got to be a world champion or won the British Commonwealth European. It's not a coincidence. I was willing to put my ass on the line. Now, there's some things that I haven't got. I haven't got a fucking jet. I haven't got a helicopter. Do you know why? Because I didn't take the risks that I should have took. I should have gambled with the, with the with the money that I made. But I could have took more risks. I could, I could grow my wealth even more if I take more risks. But I'm not willing to because I've achieved everything I wanted to. I've done it now. I'm happy. So there's there's always more out there. But I just never get why anyone looks at anyone else for satisfaction or clarification of, of I've got this or I've got that. Why look at anybody else? Everyone's different. Everyone, and, and I see people going like, well, I'm struggling, he's struggled and I've struggled. Well, no, because everyone struggles every single day. No one lives a perfect life. We all struggle. It's just how we cope with ourselves and how we get through certain times and incidents in our lives. And no one, one thing you should look at in life, no one gives you nothing for nothing. No one. Only a fucking... 
You know, okay, okay we get the odd freak who wins the lottery, but let me tell you, mate, he still had to go to the shop and put that fucking ticket on. He didn't win it by fluke, he won it because he took a chance. No one gives you nothing in life for nothing, and you should never be angry to me because he's got that or she's got this, or he betrays this in his life, or he betrays that. When you see the likes of social media and Instagram, you see these fellas, they put a watch on with a card on, and I've got this in my bank or this in my house. Let me let a camera follow him for 24 hours in a day and let me show you the imperfections in his life as well. I could wake up every single day, and I've said this numerous times, and show you a fucking amazing life. Pick, wake up, show you me car, show you me watch, show you me wife, show me me kids all laughing and joking around the house, show you fucking food getting cooked, show you just all the nice things I've got. But then if that camera follows me for 24 hours a day, I've got two kids at home right now who are sick. They've got this vomiting virus bug thing, they're fucking spewing the guts up all over the place. I've got a baby who keeps shitting his pants. Every time he shits his pants, it's like water and it's coming down the back and, and we're trying to clean it up, scrub the carpet while we're doing it. I've got the 13-year-old arguing with the 16-year-old, two of them are knocking fuck out of each other upstairs. I'm trying to control the nine-year-old because he wants to join in with them. Now, I've got numerous phone calls. I need to do this podcast. I need to do that thing. I've got to be down for the zone. I've got to do something for Eddie. I've got to do this. I'm asking Eddie to do something for me. I've got fights to manage, calling me. Now, that sounds pretty fucking chaotic if you ask me. That's only the last couple of hours. Now, I could, I've just told you, I could make my life look perfect. I could do a video follow myself out the house, get dressed, put my stuff on, put my nice watch on, get in a nice car, drive off, drive here, video myself doing little clippets of this and go, what a, doesn't he live the best life? That's not reality, that's not real. It's a load of bullshit. Why would anyone be jealous of what I've got? I've worked me bollocks off for what I've got. If you've seen the shit I've gone through to get it, you wouldn't be jealous. You know what? You wouldn't do it because you couldn't because you're not willing to persevere through the shit I've persevered through. No one gets nothing for nothing. Mate, fucking hell. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. A few more things you want to talk about, mate, because there's some sexy stuff we haven't spoken about yet. So your the, the Masternick fight, the European title fight. So so um when I had my eye, I was my heart was struggling. I was in a real real dark place. And the reason why I wanted to do this podcast actually because I was looking for inspiration everywhere. Okay. Because I had I had nine surgeries on my eye over three years. I spent every penny I ever in boxing. I spent on operations. I remortgaged my house. I sold my car. It was brutal. And every surgery I had, things was getting worse and worse. And, I was, and, and, and the light at the end of the tunnel was getting further and further. And I wanted to give up every single day. But I didn't. I kept going and I kept going and I kept going. And I needed like to hear inspiring stories, you know, like this, like yours, to kind of keep me going. I, I needed all the help in the world. And then... I started doing like a vision board, like a life board, right? And what I was doing, and it's, it's a bit cheesy, but listen, at the time I was doing, I was doing these mad vision therapy exercises. I was waking up at four in the morning doing this, like, it was, it was, it was nuts. I was, I learned Japanese, long story, right? But um, Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. And I did this vision board, right? And I basically, I, I, I printed off pictures of people that inspired me and things I wanted, right? I had... You'll know the picture, Sugar Leonard with the with, with the green belt, while old school green WCB belt over his head, WBC belt over his head. I had all the different belts I wanted to have: the British title belt, the the Commonwealth belt, the WBA belt, and the European belt. Right? <laughs> so you, it's not there anymore. But um, up until when I retired a couple of years ago, there was a photo of you. Well, not of you, but of you. In my bedroom, I guess <laughs> what I did. <laughs> what I did, I cut, I cut your head out. That's the Masternick fight. You got the blue European belt above your head after the fight, and I cut your face off. 
and put my face on. So my head was on your body. Well, we for like... Crack and jump. And I, mate, every single day I woke up and I looked at that, right? And I had my little, my, my, my big, like, frame that I made and of all the world type, all the belts I wanted to get in, the European belt was one of them. And I tried it, man. And, you know, like, I was, unfortunately, I couldn't get back in the wings. My eye was, 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 was damaged too much. But, yeah, a little story. That European fight, I've seen that picture more times than you've seen that picture. <laughs> like, it's just my head, not your head. <laughs> it was a, a really hard fight that night, and it's mad that me both eyeballs got scratched that night. So I've, got, I've had uh, deep scratches on both eyeballs, and he removes the film, comes off every so yeah. often. Oh, the fucking, so I can't imagine the pain you felt, but I can, I've felt a little bit because that pain in your eyes is the worst pain. It feels... Like it's just a wound open. It's the, the eye is the only thing that never fully heals. Just the film goes back over. I think it's described as it's cornea or something. I don't know. You'll know all the names. But when that film comes off, it for that after the Masternak fight, there's a picture of me sitting in the hotel lobby, and this eye can just remain like this, and this eye is like closed over, and I was my two hands were fucked as well. I damaged both hands against Masternak. Such a hard bastard. Uh, yeah, you know what? You look at it, and, and yes, the good victories, but. You should have some comfort in yourself. You is easy good enough to win them titles. It's just that it's been taken away. Yeah, listen, mate. You know, life happens. Should have some. It does, but without it, I can one hundred percent guarantee for the fact, mate. You was technically a brilliant, brilliant fighter and so fit and so dedicated. So you would have walked. Thank you, man. It's very kind. So this whole story, these last couple of hours, have all been built up to one big crescendo. Um, you fought Makabu. How good was he? Oh, very strong. Very, very, very strong. Uh, dangerous from... I knew from studying him, so I was always diligent in the way I prepared to study. I watched him knock heavyweights out. Uh, he, he was dangerous, mate. Very, yeah. very heavy. And I knew I had to get rid of him in the first... In the first six. He's only someone... He starts off slow, and he gets stronger as the fight goes. He builds in. Yeah, he just gets stronger and stronger. So I knew I had to, uh, I had to get rid of him. Knew it and took risks first round to come out once again I said to you earlier on I've only ever nervous for two fights in my life that first one we in the beach uh, and this second one mate was, was I was I was shitting it I was literally shitting it we were walking that ring walking the ring major major nerves in the dressing room fucking panics and then I just get in he cops I'm, I'm pissing the first round I've studied him I've watched him he's doing everything that I've studied everything's going perfect to the T I'm copping him with every shot. I pull his right hand down, smack away at him on the temple. He goes back, and then it gets to about the last 10 seconds around one. I'm trying to jump on him to land this right up the body as I'm throwing out the jab. I've thrown out the jab, and I've seen he pulls back slightly, telegraphs a little bit, and as he pulls back, I, I do this and pull back. This punch just hits me. Backhand. Both straight left hand. It hits me on the nose. But then crunches and snaps my nose, but travels down and pushes me shin back like this. And I just go boom, my legs just just go. My legs completely fall apart. And then I roll backwards and do a backwards roll over. And it literally I've heard all of them screaming for me, cheering me out to get the stoppage. And then that the whole place, thousands and thousands of people in that stadium just went dead. Is it silence? And I literally I can hear the referee counting. Yeah. And when the referee's going two. And I'm going, I can, and I'm, I'm walking once again, start talking to myself. I'm walking around and watch it back on YouTube or whatever. I'm going, I can't believe he fucking dropped me. Can't believe that. Four, and I'm going, move up the fucking way, I'm going to kill him. Five, and I'm going, 
fuck's sake, I've been on the floor. Were you embarrassed? And like, are you, well, what is that? Like, is it... Are, are you just embarrassed? Fuck, are you, are you, are you no, I was hurt, definitely. I mean... Well, leg, wobbly legs. Wobb no, my legs were so strong. I was hurt because I felt the power of the punch. But I won't... Explain, sorry, sorry, explain what being hurt means as a boxer because for non-boxing fans listening to this, they might think hurt like when you bang your elbow. You know, and that hurt. Why does hurt mean as... So I've been dropped numerous times in my career. I've never been kept on the floor for 10 seconds. So I've been dropped and been down, uh, been saved on my feet. Being hurt is like... So Oval McKenzie hits me the first time. He hits me so hard, I go flat on my face. I didn't see the punch. The only thing I remember is standing there and then the next thing, I'm on the floor and looking at my hands. So it doesn't hurt, it's in a pinch, a prick. Prick on your leg, like I said, we could pinch me before, that hurts. This hurt is like, fuck, how did that happen? It's not like you go, clench your chin and go, go on, hit me. And that, it's not, it, you don't feel, you just don't see it, doesn't go. The one that puts you on the floor, you don't see and yeah. you do not feel. Uh, when that happened with Macabu, I was just like, you idiot, I can't believe you fell for this, you fucking can't talk to myself, go back to the corners of Dave Caldwell. And then I've got a little man in front of me. He's this big, he's bald, he's got the worst accent. Hey, Sheffield. You got greedy. You got fucking greedy. And I was like, fucking ungreedy. I was fat fucking when I was a kid. I know what greed's all about. Uh, and I just thought, I've got to get rid of this guy. Second round, I don't remember anything at all about it. I don't even, I, like I thought, when I went back to the dressing room, I thought I knocked him out on the second. I was completely concussed from the first round. Mm. So I don't remember anything from round two of Macaro. I have to watch it on telly. Uh, third round I remember uh, wobbling with the left hook in the corner I counted him I drew him in so I, me, me plan B was if I can't get rid of him by pressing him draw him in hate him then finish him off so the, I, I resorted to plan B straight away in round three and as I've drew him in I've drew him in I've gained him confidence I, I let the jab land on me the jab was hitting me just here just, just short of me chin jab it to me there jab it to me there again he steps in as he steps in I've come across Gone bang, retained the right hand, but I've hit him on the chest. And as I've hit him on the chest, it squared him up. As I've squared him, went whack with a short left hook. And he's, he's, he doesn't, he's got a good poker face in London Macabre, but he backed up straight away. He didn't, he didn't show me any emotion in his face. It's just a minute it clipped him on the chin. He backed up and he never backs up that quick. I thought, right, you felt it straight away. Run after him, chase him, and throw him combinations, head and body. The landing, but none of them have had that effect that that short little left hook had. I've got him to the ropes now. I need him to trade. We'd studied this. We'd watched him. Me and Dave have gone over and over it in the game plan. The right hand, drop your shoulder, load the left leg, come back with the left hook. As I've thrown, I've got him on the ropes. I've gone bang, bang, two body shots. He's made the noise. Thrown another jab to the missing. As I've thrown the right hand, it's come over the shoulder and missed. And he's thrown that lazy, banked on him, throwing lazy jabs. He's... He's a relaxed fighter, so he likes to have everything at his own pace. So as I've thrown the right hand into me, he's made the cardinal say he's just dropped the right hand like this. And because I'm over this side of me here, I've dropped with the only weight onto my left leg, loaded my left leg, the left hook comes across, boom, and it hits him on the chin. He was asleep, gone, mate. Mm. He's out, and don't get me wrong, Victor Lachlan tries to stop me, but as he's dropping to the floor head first, I've hit him two more times on the back of the head. I've got to make sure, mate, because this is my moment. Uh, he was like a, like a tree, wasn't he? Yeah, he went down he just, the tree. He just dropped. what a punch. And that, like as I said, like everything you've just described it perfectly. Because I watched it again last night. Watched it the time of it happening, and you've just you've got a great way of artic articulating what happened. 
and like that shot right on the chin, his head and the snap thing, his body was just gone. Like, that, that was great. It wasn't like I'm glad that you, you worked on that specific punch. It just shows that like hard work pays off. It wasn't like a, a shut your eyes and a swing. We knew drop you all the way to the left leg and then fire it, come right back through and like I said, I knew how good he was and how dangerous he was. The fact that he's world champion now speaks volumes. I already knew what he's about, but that that shot means it would have knocked anybody out. Anybody. It didn't matter. Uh, I suppose the only thing I look back on and think, I'm not on that just have fun, I just smile. That moment was just the greatest moment of my whole career. Everything came to, into place. All the, the shit I'd spoke over the years, all the nonsense I'd spoke, all the bullshit, all the... He's full of shit. It all it all gets wiped at that moment because I've achieved everything then. Yeah. I've then fulfilled my goals, my dreams. All them arguments about the people in the past that, oh, you don't even be yourself. You couldn't even beat him. You couldn't do this. All them arguments back on myself all the way. It comes true at that moment. How did that feel? I couldn't put it into words. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only time I've ever been. I've got no words for that. Yeah. What I felt that night... I'll never ever feel ever again. It just made all them nights worth it. Them, them months of being away from home, leaving me kids. I was so, I'm the most selfish person in the world when I when I need when when I need to achieve something. Well, when I needed to achieve that, I was the most selfish man in the world. I had three kids and would just pack up and leave. I'm going to camp. Kids, birthday doesn't matter. I'm trading for the fight of my life. Uh, it did. I was selfish, me, which is hard to say, but it's just being honest. Of course, I didn't win a world title for my kids. I didn't win a world title for my wife. I won it for me. I had that dream of 15 years old to be a WBC world champion. They didn't have that dream. I had it. And, and I put everything before them, which is hard to say, and, but it's honesty. And that's the best way to be. I'm honest about it. I try and make it up to them every single day now with what I'm doing with them now. And the life that they lead and the things that they have, yes, that goes along with securing it. But ultimately, I've still been that selfish fucker who would leave on a drop of a hat. Who would put us has put his, his career before anything in life, but it, it's it's why I got where I got, mate. I couldn't have got there any other way. Uh, so thankfully it worked out in the end. Mate, on that note, fucking hell, it's been a great chat. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I had a little note here to finish off with, mate. you got a beautiful wife. you got four kids that even though they're embarrassed of you, I'm sure they look up to you and they adore you. And none of it is the greatest success. As I say, what I'm creating in the four walls in the house, that will be the greatest success that I'll have. I can do a decent job with my kids. And the crack on what I'd give to get one of my kids to uni, that would be a great achievement and success. If I can get one on the golf course, me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll be over the moon. So, yeah, I haven't got much goals in life, but just keep them happy. I just want happy kids. I don't, I'm not expecting rocket scientists because yeah. they've got my brains, they're fucked. <laughs> uh, they've thankfully got their mother's looks. That's a good thing. Uh, so, they'll be good. And, and yeah, just, just happiness and the kids happy and, and, and life's a success. Wow, what a guy. Such an inspirational man. Tony Bell, you thank you so much, mate. He said so many things in that podcast that stuck with me. Uh, one direct quote I loved and I wrote it down. Why would anyone be jealous of what I've got? I've worked my bollocks off. You wouldn't be jealous. You wouldn't do it because you couldn't. Because you're not willing to persevere through the shit I've persevered through. No one gets nothing for nothing. And I make it right. In this life, you don't get given anything. You don't get what you want. You get what you're willing to work for. That's my experience anyway. 
and I'm I'm so proud and thankful for Tony to come on and sharing his experiences today. So thank you so much for listening to the first ever episode of Getting Back Up. This is going to be a weekly thing, a weekly podcast to inspire you to help you go after and achieve your dreams. Please like, share and subscribe. If you think anyone's going to like this podcast, please send it to him. If you think anyone can benefit from being educated by the great Tony Burton, please send it to him and share this podcast. It's really going to help this podcast grow to help as many people as possible. Next week, I've got Sam Ward on the podcast. GB hockey sensation that went blind in his eye after getting a hockey ball smashed in his eye during an Olympic qualifier. Went through the surgeries and he made it back to become an Olympian. It's a ridiculously inspiring story. Please tune in next week to hear that and every single week thereafter. I personally want to say a massive thank you to the two legends I work with on a daily basis, Lawrence and Paul at OD Films. Thank you, boys, for producing this podcast. You're both legends. Check out their link in the description. Now, if you know someone with an unbelievably inspiring story that deserve to come on the podcast and share their story to help others, then please reach out to me on Instagram at Anthony Ogogo and at Get Back Up Pod and on TikTok at Anthony Ogogo. Remember, the great Nelson Mandela once said, do not judge me by my successes. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again always get back up always stay in the fight and i'll see you next week <laughs>